Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. You betcha this is Downtown, the podcast. And welcome into episode number 179. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell here with you. Downtown presented every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We got a couple of fine conversations for you on this week's edition of the program. A little bit later on, we celebrate the 25th anniversary of the film That Thing You Do as we talk with Jake Crane Schreifels of The Ringer about his oral history of the movie. He talked to pretty much everybody involved in the making of the film, and we'll chat with him about that. Up first, though, one of our favorite guests on our radio show. He's one of America's premier sports writers, a former National Sports Writer of the Year, and the author of a number of books. Last time out, he was writing about the great magician Harry Houdini in the life and afterlife of Harry Houdini. This time out, he looks at the top baseball players of all time in a mammoth undertaking called the Baseball 100. We had a blast talking about the book and some of those players with the great Joe Posnanski. I love this book so much. I, I read many of the essays when they first uh, came out on The Athletic, but this, to me, this book is what being a baseball fan is all about, and it's sharing the stories of these great players. Well, thank, thank you for saying that. It means a lot to me. It's, it's exactly what I was hoping for. Um, yes, it's the 100 greatest players in baseball history, ranked in order, for, you know, perfectly suited for argument's sake. But, <laughs> but as you say, it's really, for me, it's about the stories, of course. I mean, this is, in so many ways, this is my, you know, I don't know, my love letter to baseball. I mean, this is all about why I love the game and, and, and why I'm such a big fan and have been my whole life. I mean, that's, that's what's at the heart of this thing for me. Uh, but at the same time, it's perfectly suited so that people can – yell at me for ranking, you know, Sandy Koufax too low or something. <laughs> so it's, it's a, uh, it, it, it really has been, the, the thing that's been crazy for me is, you know, you write an 880 page uh, baseball book and you're like, okay, well, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be good. This is, you know, really, really hardcore baseball fans are going to, are going to like this. I think everybody's going to get into this, but you know, the, the success that this book has had in the first week has been just, mind-blowing i'm i'm so overwhelmed by it so uh so god i'm telling you rich i'm doing great well to me this is one of those books that uh you know in, in the world of actual books not virtual books that people will come into your house and see that on the shelf and go oh all right you're on you're in my club you're one of those people because it, it to me it's up there with the, the the greats you know lawrence ritter's the glory of their times and this is just a celebration of the game like nothing else well, that's that. That could not be kinder than to compare it to, to a book like Lawrence Ritter's book. I mean, it's it's, you know, it, it is honestly what I hope it would be, and which is, you know, this this each of these stories, each of these players in this book, uh, you can argue about, you know, some of them whether or not they, you know, should be ranked higher or lower, whether there should be other players in their place, whatever the case may be. But here you have these hundred great players and each of them has such a remarkable story about what made them great. Why, you know, why they made baseball better. Uh, their father and son stories in here. They're obviously integration stories in here. There are a bunch of Negro leagues players on, on this list. There's a Japanese player on this list. 
Um, you know, and I think when you put it all together, uh, I hope that it's like a little bit of a history of, of baseball. And, and so that's the hope. And, and it is, it is substantial, you know, so if, you have it, if you have it on your bookshelf, it's not like people, it's not like, it's not like a super thin, like, you know, David Sedaris book. You might miss it or something. You know, it's, it's a big fat book. If you have it on your bookshelf, people are going to notice. Well, yeah. And, and you can use it as a doorstop too, if you want. Exactly. <laughs> a step ladder to, to fix your light bulb or something. I had one, one guy, one guy sent me a note saying that, uh, that the book came in the mail and his wife thought it was the refrigerator that they had ordered. So I thought that was, <laughs> I thought that was impressive. Uh, so many great stories. I, I have to ask you about a few. And the one that I think I was most fascinated with, because I didn't know very much about it. Are you sure that Bullet Rogan is not a fictional character? Unbelievable, right? <laughs> Unbelievable character. And, you know, there's the thing that's, that I think is going to be hopefully so fun for baseball fans is there are Negro League players in this book that you know, right? You know Josh Gibson and you know Satchel Paige and, and maybe, you know, you know Oscar Charleston, you know, from recent, you know Papa Bell. But here's a guy, Bullet Rogan, who was, you're right, like a fictional character. He was Shohei Otani in the 1920s. He was a fairly small, stocky guy who was called Bullet because of his fastball. He was an incredible pitcher, and he might have been an even better hitter. Uh, you know, he, he, he played literally every day, and of course, in the Negro Leagues, that was not uncommon for pitchers to play every day, but he played every day. He was a great hitter, he's a great fielder, and, and great pitcher, and, and you're right. It, it doesn't seem possible. Of course, he's in the Hall of Fame, and and uh, I think people have a lot of fun reading about him. And, and the bookend to Bullet Rogan, I think, is John Henry Lloyd, Pop Lloyd. But the best yes. part of that story to me was not the Pop Lloyd story, but the Ted Harlow story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I, I got to say, I mean, the thing that's so incredible, that the Negro Leagues is such a a rich history, right? It's so there's so many players the thing that that it's like the more we learn about the negro leagues and now super fortunate you know i'm so proud of major league baseball for now including the negro leagues as a major league right so now their statistics are a part of the official record and all of this we don't have that many of statistics but the ones we have are part of the record but the thing is the more we learn about it the more incredible crazy unbelievable stories there are that are so rich and such an amazing part of baseball. It's like, it really is. Every time I would, I would write about almost anybody on this list, but particularly when I wrote about Negro Leaguers, it just took me down these rabbit holes of legend and, and, and myth mixed in with these incredible stories with mixed in with the bittersweetness of, of, you know, a guy like Josh Gibson, who, who died, you know, just sad because he never really got to play in the major leagues. And so, you know, it's, it, it really is just incredible storytelling. We're talking with Joe Posnanski about the Baseball 100. I love the story of Saduhura O. Oh, of course, I, I knew about the home runs. What I didn't know is that well, his career began as a, basically a slacker who couldn't get his talent together. <laughs> and, and essentially became Saduhura O, oh, the, the all-time home run champion and everything, through samurai training. Right. I mean, it's like, it's, that's... That's what's so wonderful about baseball. And I mean, it's, you know, look, I, it's true on other sports, uh, uh, surely, but baseball has been around for longer, you know, among, among uh, American sports. You have stories like that. I mean, when I, 
when I said, okay, look, Sadahara O has to be on my list. He has to be on my list. He's, you know, and you, you talk to all of these players and they all tell you how great he would have been in the major leagues. And of course we see that now we see how Shohei Otani or Ishiro come over here and, and, and dominate the game just like they did there. And you, you've got to believe he would have done that as well. But then you, you hear the story of how he trained with a sword and, and, <laughs> and it's just, it's, so wonderful. Just so wonderful, Rich. I'm fascinated by the early years of professional baseball before some of the rules that, that we know now became adopted. And so I love the story uh, of Kid Nichols, a guy who is is somewhat forgotten. And, and I, I, I was taking notes as I read, so I hope I got this right. Was it seven 30-win seasons in his career? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. All in the 1880s. The thing I love about Kid Nichols, Kid Nichols is a great story because Kid Nichols, until about 1900, Kid Nichols was superior to Cy Young. And then Cy Young, you know, had another 10 years after Kid Nichols stepped out where he was dominant, and that's how he becomes, you know, the guy we we named the the greatest pitcher award after and all of that. But Kid Nichols won 30 games under, I think, three or four different sets of rules. Like the rules changed, like how many balls – you know, right. counted for a walk and, and whether foul balls were, were considered strikes or not. And like, like three or four different rule changes and it didn't matter. It's like kid Nichols just kept dominating the game and, and uh, what a great story. And, and like his retirement, he, he, he ended up like kind of inventing a, a scoreboard system. So people could, could like follow the world. Mm. He, he invented this giant scoreboard. I mean, there's like each of these guys, uh, especially some of the old-time guys, their stories just, it's like you're going, okay, well, that's a really good story, and then you find out something else and something else and something else, and it just it just keeps going and going and going. At number 61, one of the most fascinating stories in the book, uh, a guy that some say might be the second-best shortstop of all time, but, but you posed the question uh, to people, which was, who's the least-known great player in baseball history, and, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a better candidate than Archie Vaughn. Archie Vaughn, I remember I was watching a Kansas City Royals game and there was they were playing the Pirates and and the question was something like who is the who was the Pirate that had the most double? I can't remember exactly what the question was. But they listed off four guys. They were all four in the Hall of Fame. And and Archie Vaughn was one of the people they listed. And the announcers were like, Who the heck is Archie Vaughn? And these are you know, these are two <laughs> announcers who I are really good friends of mine and great baseball fans. And they didn't know Archie Vaughn, who really, truly might be the second best shortstop in the history of Major League Baseball. I mean, that's stunning to me. But it was sort of the way he lived as well. I mean, he was he was a player who who did not want attention, who was very, you know, very quiet, uh, did not buy into any of the of sort of the hype that, you know, that even at that time was a part of the game. And uh, and he just sort of went unknown, and then for years and years he didn't get into the Hall of Fame, and finally he went in, you know, many 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 years after his death, and and yeah, I I I, I will admit that I I was probably you know pretty old when I first figured out who Archie Vaughn was, but what an incredible player. As a New Englander, uh, growing up when I did, Carl Yastrzemski was my favorite player as a kid. The first season I really paid attention. Uh, to baseball was that unbelievable 1967 season. And, and you make a case that that's one of the great seasons in baseball history. But I love the story 
uh, of Paul Pettit and what drove Carl Yastrzemski and his dad to hold out until they got the money they wanted to sign to be a Major League Baseball player. Yeah, that, and that was a story that just kind of kept going and going. Like, as I, you know, like a lot of these stories, he wanted to be the first person. Paul Pettit had signed a contract, I believe, was the first one to sign a $100,000 contract. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I know he signed a gigantic contract. And that inspired, I mean, that was truly what Carl Yusfremski, he's like, I want to be like Paul Pettit. I want, to, I want to make that kind of money. And he was an amazing athlete. And he went to Notre Dame on a basketball and baseball scholarship. He, he was an amazing athlete. And sure enough, his father and him, you know, but mainly his father, like, kind of used one team against another, negotiated, negotiated, and ended up getting him this $100,000 signing bonus, which just, to me, was so fascinating. But you can't say enough, by the way, about that 1967 season. I, I, I really believe that, you know, there are seasons that you could say are better. I mean, Babe Ruth seasons when he out-homered entire teams, and obviously Barry Bonds at the end. We don't need to talk about that. But I don't think for pure clutch performance, the way he played in September when that team needed to win, and this team that nobody expected to do anything, when they needed to win to become, you know, the whole impossible dream thing, and and he hit like 650 in those games. I mean, it was something insane. And, and uh, yeah, so to me, uh, that's, that is truly one of the greatest seasons in baseball history. There are some str- uh, tremendous statistics that you've unearthed in the book, but to me, I don't think anything was more impressive than the numbers Tony Gwynn had against wow. Greg Maddox. I, uh, again, you know, it's, here's the thing. You, you find a statistic, like especially when you're doing a book like this, like you find these really fun, cool, interesting statistics, including one, one of my favorites, that Gaylord Perry – and his brother Jim, at one point for one day, like 1976, <laughs> had exactly the same record. Yes. Had ex- it was like something like 214 and 187 or something, exact same record. I just that 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 to me is so poetic. But I find out I'm just go I'm just looking up Tony Gwynn numbers and I see that Tony Gwynn faced Greg Maddox a hundred times or something, never struck out. Yeah. Now, Greg, now, Greg Maddox was not a big strikeout pitcher. I mean, you know, he did strike out 200 in a year a couple of times, but he was not a huge strikeout pitcher. Um, but that still seemed to blow my mind. How, how, how does that happen? And sure enough, I look, and it's unprecedented. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's nothing like it. There's, you know, to have, to have a Hall of Famer face another Hall of Famer that many times without ever striking out one time uh, incredible, pure, purely incredible. Joe, was there anybody in the baseball 100 that had more stories about them than Ricky Henderson? No, no. As soon as you started, <laughs> as soon as you started that question, more stories about it was like, yeah, Ricky Henderson. <laughs> Ricky, Ricky Henderson. Now, Ricky Henderson is number 24 in the book, and I think people who are big Ricky Henderson fans will know why. Um, <laughs> Ricky Henderson is utterly and completely unique in baseball history. Not only because, you know, I think Bill James was the first one to say he's really, he's, he's two Hall of Famers, right? He's a Hall of Famer as, a, as the greatest leadoff hitter ever, and he's a Hall of Famer as the greatest base dealer ever. It's like there are multiple ways that he's a Hall of Famer, but nobody has the stories. And they're, and they're all 
hilarious. They're all so funny. And, and it's funny, since I wrote that piece, I've heard another 20. Probably Ricky <laughs> Anderson stories. Then when when the baseball one hundred volume two comes out, we'll we'll have to we'll have to get it in. But yeah, I mean he's he was he was utterly unique. I mean, just incredible player. Now he didn't have the the counting numbers that one would get from a long career. But uh, as you say in the book, uh, if the devil gives you one pitcher to play for your soul, you want Pedro Martinez the ninety nine two thousand version. Yeah. I, I really, truly believe that. I mean, look, and you could make – that's really a fun conversation, right, because you could certainly take Koufax in the mid-'60s. You could take Gibson in 68, Bob Gibson in 68. You could take Randy Johnson any number of years, you know, Maddox when he was basically, you know, the perfect pitcher. But for me, I'll take Pedro, 99, 2000. Just there was, there was nothing you could do against him. I mean, his – he, you know, he would never walk you. He would strike. He struck out, you know, whatever, 11, 12 uh, uh, per nine innings. Uh, he didn't give up hits. He didn't give up home runs. There was, there was, you had no chance. You had no chance against him uh, at his very best. And his very best was not that long a period of time. But, but I'll, I'll tell you what. I mean, you could make so many good arguments for who the greatest pitcher of all time is. And, and it's very, very interesting conversation. But who is the greatest pitcher at their very peak, to me, is an even more fun conversation. And for me, it's Pedro Martinez. I don't want to give away the number one because I want people to read the book, but, but I thought you would appreciate this. I have a baseball card from one of his best years <laughs> that would be worth a lot more money if I hadn't written my name on it when I was about right. eight years old. Right. Well, but but the, on the other hand, your mom didn't throw them out, right? So that is that, there's, there's here's the thing, and, and everybody who knows, and there is by the way, there's I, I will tell people if they want to look for it. There is an entire essay on baseball cards uh, under under Blylevin, uh, if they want to check that out <laughs> in the book. But here's the thing: there's only two ways it can end. I think for childhood baseball cards, now it's different now because everybody sort of understands the value, but. For us growing up, it either ends that you ruin the cards yourself yes. by putting them in the spokes of your tires or, <laughs> or just writing on them or whatever, or your mom threw them out. That's basically, those were, the, those were the only two endings that we had for baseball cards when we were growing up. What's the biggest argument you've had from people? Any, any major disagreements with your list? Oh, <laughs> only, only 100. Only 100 <laughs> major disagreements with the baseball 100. Um... Yeah, you know, there, I, look, there are people that are not in this book that a lot of people think should be, and which which they're right. I mean, they're, it's not like they're wrong, but I mean, Pudge Rodriguez and Barry Larkin and and uh, and Eddie Murray and Joey Votto and and Shulis uh, uh, Joe Jackson, on and on. There's there's a bunch of great players who are not on this list, and and you could make a very strong argument for any of them. I I think I told people this that my last 10, 91 through 100, I actually had 40 players that were candidates for that last 10. Wow. And so, you know, which, which just tells you how many great, great, great players there have been in the history of baseball. And then there are those that, that think that, you know, certain players are too high, certain players are too low. Of course, you hear all of that. And probably the biggest argument, being perfectly honest, is the number one argument. Who is number one? Uh, there are really, I would say, five or six 
very strong candidates for the greatest player of all time. Um, and I've heard from, you know, everybody about those. So, <laughs> uh, so I would say that, you know, but which, but again, that's the point, right? I mean, for me, like the point of this is to have these arguments, have these conversations. It's fun. That's the fun part about baseball is I think we all have really strong opinions about these things. Well, it's the kind of book I think fans will go back and read time and time again when the dead of winter strikes us here in the Northeast. Uh, I can't wait to take that book out, open it again, and start reading more of these tremendous stories. So well-researched, so well-written, as is everything you do, Joe. Uh, love the Baseball 100, and it's great to have you on to talk about it with us. Thank you, Rich. This is a lot of fun. Talking baseball with Joe Puznanski doesn't get a whole lot better than that. We'll take a break. Get a quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance, and then remember the film That Thing You Do with Jake Kring Schreifels of The Ringer next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. directorial debut hit movie theaters around the country. That Thing You Do was not an immediate success at the box office, but it's gone on to have quite a life as a favorite among so many people. 25 years later, we had a chance to talk about the making of the film with Jake Kring Schreifels, who conducted a wonderful oral history of That Thing You Do for The Ringer. Jake, thank you so much for being with us. I, I loved your oral history uh, of That Thing You Do. It's always been one of my favorite movies. What drew you to it? Well, I had uh, mentioned on social media when I posted this article, I grew up in uh, Seattle for most of my life. And uh, I remember distinctly my music teacher in elementary school pulling in the TV. And it must have been at some point at the end of the year when not a lot was going on. And, and she specifically decided we needed to watch That Thing You Do as a fourth grade class. And so I think we spent a couple days uh, spreading it out and watching the whole movie. And ever since then, it just stuck with me. I probably convinced my parents to go to Blockbuster and so we could watch it again. You know, as a little kid, you start to cling on to something and then <laughs> you naturally want to see the thing over and over again. And so that was a lot of my movie watching experience as a kid. Um, and, and so from there, it then turned into a greater appreciation as I got older about what was actually happening in the movie, the talent of the performances, Tom Hanks's direction, the writing, the music, obviously. I had a greater perspective once I started to engage and start writing about movies, but it really just continued to blossom for me. So it started as kind of an innocent uh, music teacher uh, offering this to a class and uh, continued to grow in my appreciation uh, ever since. 
All right. First of all, you had the coolest fourth grade teacher of all time. <laughs> I did. I did. She knew what she was doing. That's wonderful. Well, you have talked to just about everybody associated with the film, and we've had a chance, as I told you, to talk to a few of the guys. But uh, what I found is this, and, and clearly you did by by talking to so many people, is that they all love this experience and, and look back on it fondly 25 years later uh, as not just a terrific film, but as, as one of the more enjoyable filmmaking moments that most of them have had. Yeah, I, I remember when I started my my first interview with uh, Tom Everett Scott, who plays Guy Patterson, and I, I almost had to apologize to him at the beginning and then just say, look, I, I know you have talked about this movie ad nauseum over your career, and I and I just wanted to let you know that I, I'm going to ask some different questions here, and you know, just trying to make sure that he knew that I wasn't going to just do the same old kind of uh, five-minute questions, and he just stopped me and he said, no, 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 look, just so you know, this is one of the greatest experiences of my life. I love talking about it. And that really set the tone for this project for me because it really was, as you mentioned, it echoed so much of uh, what everyone else told me about this, that to this day, people come up to them and all they want to do and is talk about that thing you do, aside from maybe all of the other amazing credits in their filmography. Uh, so the experience what I found was that it did very much match the enthusiasm of the fans and the and the feel-good nature of this movie. And, you know, not always is that the case when you're looking at these kinds of movies. There are some times where maybe an actor or a writer or an editor doesn't have the same optimism or excitement about something when it's in production. But as uh, as I quickly learned talking to so many people it was across the board pretty even in terms of what they got out of it and what people got out of it. Most well, fascinating to learn from your oral history that uh, Tom Hanks had been thinking about making a movie about this time period and the music business for a while, but it was really when he was on the set of Forrest Gump that he, he sat down and came up with the treatment for it. Yeah, I wasn't sure really the origins. I had not, and I think that was part of my interest in in wanting to do this project too. As someone who loves this movie so much, I had heard lots of interviews with the cast, but I don't think Tom had really talked too much about some of his uh, inspiration for this movie. Just aside from here and there, saying, "Oh, I like one hit wonders," or "I love 1960s music." But yeah, Forrest Gump, I think, was a big part of it for him. He mentioned to me, and and he made it clear, you know, he. He could have, he could have uh, sounded a little bit uh, arrogant by saying, "Oh, I'm so tired of working on movies and uh, being part of press tours, and so I just needed some other creative outlet to keep me going." But he did mention, you know, when you are in the throes of doing these Oscar-nominated movies and you are always doing press for things uh, and and talking about yourself in this way that's related to awards that it does get a little bit uh, frustrating and, and it can become tiresome. And so this movie and this inspiration for him really was a way to kind of combat that and create this other creative outlet for him that he could really focus on and kind of use to balance out <laughs> some of the awards posturing that he was doing throughout the uh, early 1990s. And it really is a remarkable run that he had. If you think about Forrest Gump, mm. Philadelphia, and Apollo 13 coming out all in a row. And that is an incredible, prolific uh, kind of uh, spurt that he had in his career. 
And so then to follow that up with his own smaller project, I think it kind of makes sense in the way that his career arc was going, that I think he wanted something smaller, maybe something a little bit more devoted just to his vision that uh, would make more sense to him in terms of what his life was at that moment, which was just constantly jetting around the world promoting himself. Uh, putting the band together was obviously crucial, and uh, you learned that uh, it was Steve Zahn that really was the first of the wonders to be cast, and, and he just blew everybody away when he did uh, his audition. Yeah, I didn't know that, and it was interesting talking to uh, Jonathan Demi, the uh, famous director who recently passed away, uh, his, his assistant I, I spoke with, and, and she had mentioned the fact that there was this uh, real desire by him to do a table reading. That was one of his, uh, his big uh, ideas. And, and he loved doing those for his other movies. It was a way to hear the screenplay just out loud and in the flow of things. And so when they decided to do this table read in New York, they had, uh, I, I believe Meredith Tucker, one of the casting agents had, had heard about Steve Zahn through his small theater company that he had done with Ethan Hawke. And so they even brought Ethan Hawke to do this table read. And it wasn't an audition. Steve Zahn really had no idea who was going to be there. He was pretty surprised when Tom Hanks shows up at the table read. (laughs) (laughs) So imagine you're an actor and you just get a call from your agent. Hey, can you uh, read this for us? It's just a a screenplay from some no name. And he goes in and then all of a sudden he's surprised to find uh, Tom Hanks there. And he said, I was glad I, (laughs) I was glad I did a little preparation for it. And it turned out he did way more than enough because yeah, he just stole the entire energy of the room. Just everyone was laughing. And I think Tom Hanks even went up to him afterward and kind of offered the idea of like, hey, we really like you for this. And I don't even think Steve took it seriously at first because he just thought this was something that, that wasn't even going to be a real project and maybe happen a couple years down the road. And then things <laughs> really spiraled quickly and he uh, he got a call pretty soon and got offered the part. So yeah, it was funny. He really captured this role from day one. We're talking with Jake Kring Schreifels uh, from The Ringer about his oral history uh, of that thing you do. Uh, Jonathan Sheck, uh, one of the things that may have landed the role of Jimmy for him was a line reading and the way he decided to sing the words I quit rather than just read them off the page. That's right. Yeah, I uh, I found that to be pretty cool because so much of what he's remembered for most in that thing you do is his iconic I quit scene when he goes up to the microphone and starts to sing in front of Mr. White. And to say, to, to, to learn that he did that in the audition is pretty cool. But then to learn that he was the only one that even thought of that idea, I think it, I think it proves and shows just sometimes how much that an actor can really benefit by really thinking a little bit greater than just what's written on the page. And, and sometimes these oral histories are, are good windows into an actor's mindset and how they approach auditions. And that's something that I found that to, to be really interesting as I've done some of these projects in the past is just how do you differentiate yourself? Because as he mentioned, there were a lot of young guys and, you know, some, some, some were famous, some, you know, Ed Norton, Billy Crudup, I think, those guys had also auditioned. Um, there were probably plenty of other names that Tom Hanks and some others probably refused to tell me just for their own benefit. But I think, you know, when you look at a long list of aud- audition uh, people that are coming up and, and it, they all 
look the same as you and they all seem like they're reading the same lines. Just a little wrinkle like that. And he'd also come fully dressed, too, which also set him apart. So the little things like that that can really distinguish you helped him in a a big way during that day. And they all liked Tom Everett Scott, but there were some concerns that he looked a little bit too much like Tom Hanks. Yeah, there was. And, you know, I talked to Ed Saxon about that, too, uh, one of the producers. And um, he mentioned for a long time Hollywood had always wondered, okay, who's going to be the next Jimmy Stewart? Who was going to be that guy? And Tom Hanks ended up kind of being someone that people thought was that generation's Jimmy Stewart. And so then as Tom Hanks goes throughout his career, he's got this movie he's helming, and you start to think, okay, is he – just picking somebody that's going to be his likeness is he almost taking over the role even though he's not going to be playing it and i think that was maybe weighing on his mind as he was casting he had a good amount of people that he liked but nothing he felt was really really strong for guy patterson but he really liked tom everett scott and i think that was his major qualm was just i think he looks too much like me and luckily enough rita wilson his wife went over and, and, and looked at the tape and, and just said, Tom, come on, this guy is incredible. You can't, you can't not cast him just because he kind of has, you have this one little idea that he might be uh, considered by the press to be a young Tom Hanks. So she finally convinced him to, to give him another shot. And I think that really kind of started to spark the idea in him that, you know, this was uh, this was the right choice to go with his gut, even though he felt like there might be some uh, criticism later down the road. I like Tom Hanks' description of Ethan Embry as an odd dude. <laughs> yes, he is. I, you know, I tried to coax out. I, I was wondering if he actually specifically remembered Ethan's audition because Ethan came in and had his bass guitar tagged up with so many uh, stickers and some maybe not safe for work stickers. <laughs> I'll put it like that. <laughs> And it kind of uh, set the tone for the way that uh, he acted on set. He was only 16, and you know, as a as a young teenager who's into the punk rock phase, he, you know, painted his nails. He dyed his hair at one point during the production. He was a bit of a troublemaker, and it's funny because you don't necessarily think that just looking at him in that movie, he would be the guy. He's obviously playing up a character that's kind of anonymous and, and doesn't really say a lot. So you don't have a great uh, great deal of character to work off of. But he was pretty much uh, the opposite. He did very eccentric things. And so I think Tom was really just – it was an effort by everyone on set, including Tom Hanks, to kind of rein him in, make sure he was uh, on set. And, you know, he couldn't go out to drink with the guys, but he was uh, – as he mentioned to me, he would go home and smoke weed a lot. So <laughs> – he was very much into the counterculture of the 90s at that point, but you wouldn't have guessed it just watching him. And Tom Hanks' biggest advice for the guys who played the Wonders was be on time, and, and they did that with one notable exception. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a good learning opportunity for a lot of those actors because they're all pretty much uh, in their late teens, early 20s at that point. Some of them were greener than others in their careers, but when you work with Tom Hanks, you've kind of reached it in terms of what you want to do as an actor. And I think he gave them a, he gave them that advice beyond time, know your lines. And they, three of them, uh, Tom Everett Scott distinctly remembers him, Steve Zahn and John check showing up late. And I believe it was for the Mercyhurst uh, college talent show scene. <laughs> and uh, Gary Getzman came over to them 
and uh, huddled them up and, and, and told them, Tom is very disappointed in you. <laughs> and I think they all kind of got that real sense of shame that they had done something they should not have. And so then Tom Hanks's words really started to uh, become accentuated when, when that happened. And, and it was funny because as I talked to Ethan and, and some of the others too, it did seem like Gary Getzman, who really is the co-brain of this movie. And unfortunately I was not able to speak with him, but he did kind of seem to be the protector of them. He was the first front line, so to speak, in front of Tom so that Tom didn't have to go out of his way to scold everyone or be the, uh, the consequence enforcer <laughs> in some respects. So they learned their lesson pretty quickly during that uh, shoot, and uh, it's, it's really stuck with them ever since. One of my favorite stories in your oral history is how Holmes Osborne ended up getting the part of Mr. Patterson. Yes. Yes. He found it through a uh, newspaper ad, uh, or at least a newspaper clipping that Tom Hanks was going to be making this movie. And the funny thing about Holmes is he is such an old fashioned guy. He lived outside of Kansas City, Missouri to this day. And I think when he was uh, working with Tom Hanks back in, in their Great Lakes Shakespeare days in the in the 70s, you know, he really developed a great friendship with him. And um, I think that was uh, tough because in some respects, he never really had the Hollywood career that, that Tom did after that uh, early theatrical training. And so when he sees this opportunity, and as he's, you know, aged as an actor, uh, it just kind of was a nice anecdote, I thought, to, to share about the way that Tom Hanks is as a person, that he would respond so quickly to this old friend of his from his theater days and say, you've got this role. And it was funny. I don't think I mentioned this, but he, uh, he was a little bit, Holmes was a little bit concerned that, you know, Tom didn't really know too much about his, uh, his acting besides uh, some of their early days. But apparently Tom Hanks had seen him play a very small part in this movie called Truman. And that was more than enough for him to get the role of Mr. Patterson. So it's just so funny how life can kind of find these connections for you and, and you don't really know what it will you know, hold in store until you just make an ask, make a request. And that was the case, case right there for Holmes. The movie doesn't work unless the music is not only good but believable and, and can work for that time period but also be hummable in the late 1990s as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the contributions of, obviously, the late Adam Schlesinger and the lead vocalist, Mike Viola? Yeah, Adam Schlesinger, um, just an incredible uh, musician, songwriter, and, you know, the, the the tributes really poured in last year when we found out about uh, him, him dying, uh, passing away from COVID, and I think it was really important that I spend some time really exploring this move, this this uh, movie's music, just to kind of give his legacy a little bit more mm. uh, of, of a touch of uh, you know what what he meant to this movie. I guess I should say. I, I think you know he was able to do an interview a few years ago that I, I used some excerpts from, just talking about the creative process on this song. And he was somebody that was very interested in pop pop culture and wanting to write songs for a variety of different things. He had just signed a recording uh, contract with Polygram and had some friends with Tom Hanks who told him about this project. And so that was what initially spurred him on to do this. And the interesting part of this story that I hadn't really known and I don't think had been known too much was that Mike Viola, who does all the lead vocals for this, this movie – 
was pretty reticent about doing this with Adam. Adam uh, was a good friend of his, but Mike had been through a tough time. He had uh, just lost his wife. Um, she had passed away. He was in a dark place. He came to New York and stayed with Adam, and they developed this good bond there. But uh, he was Adam was having to convince Mike to, to sing with him on this song, and so eventually he did. They recorded it. They had another producer, Annie Chase, who really created this whole Beatles vibe with them. They did Beatles chords. They went to the studio in New York and, and tried to set up the studio to be in mono instead of stereo, just like the, the Monkees or other 1960s bands would do. So they created this sound, and it was kind of like I mentioned with John Chick, trying to get into character, trying to sing and, and, and dress the part. It felt like very much as though this demo that they sent in to the That Thing You Do production team was a lot more tailored to what they were looking for, that 19 bright, 1960s bright Beatles and Beach Boys sound. And so really a, a collaborative effort there. And uh, eventually Mike Viola did have to get more convincing to, to do most <laughs> of the other songs because once you have his voice in it, you can't have another singer to be Jimmy. So Gary Getzman really did have to convince him to take part in this soundtrack. And I think after a while, Mike Viola realized the importance of this uh, to the movie. But uh, it was really a, a monumental effort that they were able to pull this off because that song is so important to this movie and it really has to be played. I think it's probably played seven or eight times throughout the movie, which is hard to uh, do and, and also still ex be excited about it. But they do it in so many different ways and diversify the songs that it really does still capture you to this day. Now, 25 years later, we, we forget that the movie was not a box office smash by any stretch, but, but it seems 25 years later, it's more popular, more beloved than ever. What's the secret to the, the legs that that thing you do has? You know, Ethan Embry told me that he thought, and I think it's a good point, he thought that most movies that have this phenomenon happen to them where they don't get the initial attraction, don't get the initial, initial box office receipts. I think, it, I think because of that, so many people feel as though they personally have found this movie. <laughs> yeah, especially in the late 90s and early 2000s when there's not the internet and, and there's not social media. If you came across this movie, chances were you didn't really hear about it too much anywhere else. And it wasn't a mainstream offer. You probably saw Tom Hanks and were interested. And I think so many people, millennials especially, younger kids like me who found it through their music teacher, at a time in their life when they were very impressionable, when they loved music, I think a lot of that generation now has come of age in social media era. And they've now decided, wow, like nobody has heard of this movie. I, I loved this. And they start to find this community of people that, also shared the same thoughts. And so I think that's sort of what happened here is there was for a long time, not many people knew too much about they, this other uh, group of people that also loved the movie the same way they did until social media uh, allows them to connect and see with hashtags, with anniversaries like this one, that there is this growing fan base. And I mean, it's so understandable to see why people love this movie. And there's, Lots of ways uh, into it. I've, I've asked just about everybody that I talked to why they thought it was so beloved, and they each each person gave me a different answer. But I do think that it was that weird time where there wasn't all that interconnectivity until you start to realize later in in, in this later part of the of the decade that 
there, <laughs> there's a lot of people that have the same ideas about it. Well, if you love that thing you do, uh, go to theringer.com and check out Pure Nostalgia, the oral history of that thing you do by Jake Kring Schreifels. Uh, Jake, I uh, loved it. Uh, some wonderful uh, new discoveries about the film and uh, tremendous work. And thanks so much for talking with us about it. Oh, I'm so glad you loved it. And, and thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Talking about that thing you do with the ringers, Jake Kring Schreifels. Our thanks to Jake and also to Joe Poznanski, his new book, The Baseball 100. And thanks to you for joining us this week on Downtown, the podcast. We'll catch you next time right here on Downtown.